Welcome, everybody. How many first-timers do we have here to the library? Welcome. My name is Andrea Snyder, and I work here. I work with the Grants Collection, which is in the Social Science and History Department. So I invite all of you after this to come down and, and check it out. It's down on the first floor to the right. What we are, we're a nonprofit resource center. We um, provide workshops. So we do these free trainings. We've got our schedule up through June. It's in the back. Um, we've got prospect research coming up next week. On May 20th, we have a class that we're doing in collaboration with Maryland nonprofits and the Governor's Grants Office. And that's going to be talking about the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, budget implications for nonprofits um, relating to the state budget, as well as talking about uh, the Serve America Act and volunteering and how your organizations can bring that in and utilize all these resources that are out there. So that's very exciting. There's going to be lots of um, local government officials who are going to be here. And hopefully, we're hoping, we, we've got to try it out. Um, but if you're not able to come to that, we're going to be webcasting it so that you'll be able to watch it from your desk. Hoping. Knock on wood that we'll have it up and running by then. Um, and so I'll be letting you know. If you are not on our email newsletter, what I'll do is I'll pass around a piece of paper if you've not received um, emails from us. And that's the quickest way to find out what's going on. I send out helpful books websites. Um, it's got all of our classes. So that's the, the best way. So we have lots and lots of books, too, here at the library. I've just brought up a sampling of what we have. We have over 300 titles here. They can all be checked out. If you are not, if you don't live in Baltimore City, if it's not convenient for you to come here, I know that parking can be a bit of a hassle at times. Not a problem. I can send them to any public library in the state. So all you need to do is call or email me. My contact information is on the brochure. So you just need to get in touch with me, and I'll get you the information. We also have access to Foundation Directory Online, which is an amazing resource. You can uh, search over 90,000 foundations in there. So if you're looking for foundation support, it's a great, great resource. You've also got access to me. That, and what I do a lot of is you call me up and say, hey, Andrea, I'm looking for whatever it might be. I'm looking to find a consultant. I'm not going to give you a consultant's name, but I'm going to connect you with the people who can give you those names. So I do a lot of information referral connecting you with the people. Are there any questions about what I do? Everybody just ready to get going now? OK. Before we get to Robert, I'm going to introduce, bring Jim up and let him tell you about all that he can do. unaccustomed as I am to public speaking. Uh, I'm Jim Kuchar. I'm the executive director of the entrepreneurship program at the University of Baltimore. Uh, I met Andrea about a year and a half ago uh, at a conference of the Social Enterprise Alliance in Boston. And I can tell you that what you're going to hear from Robert this morning, she gets. And I can also tell you that in addition to all the other fun things that I spend my time on, uh, I'm in the middle of a doctoral program. And I can tell you that a good librarian is absolutely your best friend. Because you call and you ask all these crazy questions, and they thank you for it, and go off and find the answers and come back to you. So it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. So thank you for all you're doing to, to, to help this movement in Baltimore. Uh, we run a program at UB that teaches the concept of earned income and how you can use that in a social benefit setting. 
so after Robert's done, if that's something that intrigues you, uh, our propaganda is also on the back table. Uh, feel free to take one with you, fold, spindle, and mutilate to your heart's content, and um, let us know what you think. But uh, we're proud to be part of this as well. Um, and I am always honored uh, to be able to introduce someone who uh, I think we're going to put up a statue to in about 50 years. Um, of course, he would say he would be the first one to tear down that statue, because <laughs> that's the way his mind works. Uh, Robert Egger is, 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 is a good friend, an amazing colleague, uh, an incredible voice for this movement. Uh, remembering his bio off the top of my head, he has been voted one of the 50 most influential people by the Nonprofit Times three years in a row. Uh, he has got a string of awards uh, that is far too long to recite. Uh, my personal favorite is Oprah Winfrey's 50 Sextiest Men. Uh, so. Um, but I think most importantly, he has come up uh, from the street. He's a former nightclub owner who saw a need and answered it. And I can tell you, as someone who spends his life in entrepreneurship and in social entrepreneurship, that's where it starts. And if you can see the need and recognize the opportunity and then have the courage, which is the hard part, to deal with that opportunity, you're going to make things happen. And he certainly is and continues to. And I'm honored to call him my friend, Robert Egger. Thank you. Normally, I'm not a podium guy, but we're going to record this. So I'll, I'll stick to convention here and, and, and uh, participate. I don't know about you all, but <clears throat> I, was, I was just um, speaking in Charleston, West Virginia, with the librarians of West Virginia. And we spent a significant amount of time actually talking about the fact that li libraries are the day wards in America. It was very interesting this morning to be waiting outside with all the homeless men and women who have nowhere to go during the day. Um, you know, and this is where all across America where people go. And this is an interesting way to, to start a conversation because the similarities between soup kitchens and libraries are striking. Both are historically places where people have gone to get things for free, free food, free knowledge. And both are historically places where no one's turned away. But each has had to evolve over the past few years. Libraries have become now, as many people, as you probably know, have, for example, had to let go for economic reasons um, of their newspaper subscriptions. They come to the libraries to access the computers to look at the want ads. They oftentimes come to look up and get information on how to get a new career, how to start a business, a variety of things. Um, similarly, nonprofits um, and, and particular frontline programs like the DC Central Kitchen or Soup Kitchens have had to become job training programs and oftentimes employers. We have to be um, bilingual. We have to be well-versed in issues of mental health and addiction um, and oftentimes people in crisis. Yet rarely does the public want to let go of their historic um, kind of the, the cute kind of box they have us in, you know, librarians and, you know, nonprofit soup kitchen people. No one wants to fund these groups for the evolution that they must embrace. They have to become different kinds of organizations. But historically, again, to go back to this metaphor, um, years ago, libraries, and I don't think it was really librarians as much as people who, who, who came to libraries really started to challenge the um, access notion that libraries had to be free and open. And they really wanted to start to move homeless men and women who were coming you know, in large numbers to stay out of the cold or to read, use the bathroom, um, sleep, they wanted to keep them out of libraries. And again, this is one of the situations where as a country, we wanted to genuflect to the notion that no one can be denied, denied access, but also as a society, 
we refuse to fund librarians to be able to train and deal with the issues that we that we don't want to deal with ourselves. And this is very much kind of a, a great way to begin our conversation today. And I, I do want to very much at the beginning, in the offset, let you know that I am not one of those people who I'm here to tell you that if nonprofits act like businesses, everything will be polka dots and moonbeams. I think I'm oftentimes um, portrayed as someone who's going to come in and tell you how to run a nonprofit like a business. And I'll talk about that all day long, but that isn't the solution. In fact, I always say the future is not more nonprofits. The future is not nonprofits running like business, although there is um, a case to be made for a certain um, elevation of our efficiency and our outcome measurements and that kind of stuff, which we'll discuss. But I've got to be honest with you, I'm a believer that business needs to act like nonprofits, that that's the future. Uh, and, and I'm going to, if you don't mind, we have a, a little bit of a, of a time to this morning to, to have this conversation. And what I'll try and do over the next maybe hour is set a broader, you know, kind of way we can discuss. And if, you, if you're interested, I'd be more than happy to get more into kind of a, a back and forth situation. Before we get started, how many of you all work at a nonprofit? Okay, cool. Good. We're all in the same boat. As a way, at least, of, of beginning the conversation, just to let you know who I am and what I do. Uh, you know, as Jim said, you know, I ran nightclubs as a young man. That was my coveted dream. I, I wanted to open the greatest nightclub in the world. Um, I, as, as, as a young man, I told the story many times, but again, I think it's it's important just to frame this. I saw the movie Casablanca as a young man, and at age twelve, that was immediate. I mean, it was it was a thunderbolt moment where that's all I wanted to do was open the greatest nightclub in the world. And I pursued that very, very intensely. I did not go to college. I was single-minded in my pursuit of a nightclub. But it wasn't, as my father, a Marine Corps pilot, who shook his head every time I told him of my dream, it wasn't, I wasn't drawn, well, I was, but not exclusively to the notion of the night, you know, going out, music. Um, all that stuff did intrigue me, but what got me going about Casablanca was this amazing moment in the beginning of the movie where you first see Rick's nightclub. And it's an aerial shot. Right? It's, it's you know taken from up high. And you're in the corner almost, and you're seeing um, the front doors open, literally as they did this morning, and people are surging into Rick's, dressed in their finest. Now, the, the setup has been the fact that the majority of these men and women are refugees. They're people who have left Europe uh, in the wake of World War II, and they're on the road. So what people are, are clearly doing in their in their jovality and their kind of and their and their and their manners and their clothes are they're they're trying to pretend they're seeking immediate freedom they're the uh, of being a refugee they're looking for the momentary respite of that kind of life but as you sink deeper in and, and the camera pans down and they really do this amazing tracking shot where you you are kind of witness to a variety of very intimate conversations at the lowest possible level and in different languages you can tell you know, at age 12, you could tell that all of them were seeking a different level of freedom, that they were all, in this case, the metaphorical, um, you know, um, exit to America. So at age 12, I was just mesmerized by the duality of this club, that you had a highly functioning nightclub. You know, at every level, the average person would walk in and see this is just a nightclub, a highly functioning nightclub. You have, you know, a, a Carl, the, the amazing professional waiter. You have Sasha, the bartender. You have Sam and his orchestra. You have gambling in the back. You have Rick himself. So at every level, this is a highly functioning team that is putting on a dynamic show that, if you are of a mood, will take you to a different place, if only momentarily, uh, uh, and away from the reality, the harsh reality, that the world you know is gone and will probably never be regained. 
but at the same time, there is this deeper freedom. And to me, again, the duality, that this could happen at the same time, that you could make a case that the larger nightclub was, was in effect, a cover, a front, um, a, a very, very well-crafted disguise for this deeper kind of freedom machine, you know, because this offered and Rick provided a cover for people to find an alternate form of freedom, a deeper, more permanent, lasting freedom. So I was intrigued by that. Now, and again, at the same time, I had grown up at a time where I was mesmerized by music. Um, you could, similar to um, the situation in which one of my favorite Americans, Harriet Tubman, who, by the way, just an interesting historical footnote, one of my favorite things about Harriet Tubman is she was about four foot 11 and weighed about 100 pounds. And if you really look at that, that is like an 11-year-old girl. I mean, that is so diminutive. Anytime you see a small child that you think, just see if you can figure, you know, I do this oftentimes in grade schools, ask, um, is there anyone in the room who's about four foot 11, 100 pounds? And, and when you really see how small that is and you realize that Harriet Tubman 19 times came to the South where they would have hung her in a heartbeat, it gives you a sense of the bravery and courage. But what's interesting about this is um, during Harriet's time, there were many people who spoke eloquently of, in the North about abolition. You had crazy John Brown. I was just in Kansas yesterday, um, right near Lawrence, where John Brown was living for a while. And then you had uh, uh, Sojourner Truth. You had Frederick Douglass. You had Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Um, you had a variety of people who spoke about it. But Harriet went, actually, somebody had to go down and actually pull people out. Again, this might be an awkward metaphor, but again, at the time, in the 1960s, when I was coming of age, there were a lot of people who talked eloquently about the need for races to come together, for generations to come together, for um, a variety of different freedoms. But honestly, as a young man, I was just amazed by the immediate power of a Motown record. I mean, you know, again, you could talk all day long, but boy, you put on a Motown record and it did the trick. So to me, seeing Rick's nightclub and watching music, I became really, really, really attracted to the potential of a purposeful nightclub that looked like this at one level, but through music, theater, art, dance, satire, you know, you could actually take people to a different kind of freedom. Um, that's what I wanted to do. And I worked really, really hard at that for many years, um, working my way up from, you know, again, like many people who, who anybody here done food service in your life? I hope everybody, everybody should at least once in their lives. But I mean, you know, like anybody in food service, you do everything. You know, you wash dishes, you weigh tables, you just do everything. You work hard for the money. Um, you know, it's funny how um, even now, you know, I'm always very, very respectful of how hard it is to work in a restaurant and bring home 50 to 100 bucks in tips. You know, you got to work really hard for that money. Uh, but I worked really hard. And like I said, as, as soon as I graduated high school, I roared into D.C., roared into D.C. My parents decided that they, uh, my father, who was in the Marines, decided they were going to retire, and they moved away. And historically, you know, you would move together. As a military family, we had been in probably, I don't know, eight, ten different cities together. I was the oldest of six. And I didn't want to go. Couldn't go. Mom and Dad were leaving to rural Indiana. It's like, I love you dearly, but there is no way you are taking me to rural Indiana. And I love D.C. You know, even as a young man, I'd grown up, in, grown up in Southern California. We moved to D.C. when I was 12, but I decided not only was this the town I love, but this was the perfect town for the nightclub I envisioned. You know, the nation's capital. In theory, the capital of the free world. To me, that was the stage. So I bid adieu uh, to my parents and went to, ro roared up into D.C. and started working in nightclubs. 
and it was it was a really fun time. Um, and in fact, I, I'm I'm just actually scratching my head trying to remember the name of the punk club that was right around it's where the Ethics Society, Baltimore Ethics Society, is right above it now. But there was a boy a nasty little nightclub down in Baltimore, and I can't remember the name of it now for the life. It'll come to me during the course of the evening. But I I was saved by punk rock, quite frankly. Um, I never fell completely into it. You know, I didn't get what's that? What was the name of the club? Yeah, the marble ball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, I had, yeah, I had you had the look. I could tell, man, when I looked over there. I, I, <laughs> but um, you know, again, I always I, I was talking to young kids just at William Jewell College uh, about how, in retrospect, disco is kind of fun. But back then, disco was heinous. It was horrible. I, I mean, to have seen the power and the potential of music, kind of treated that way. You know, to to have been made into a commodity. To me. And I'll loop back around, but to me, nonprofit and, and kind of rock and soul music were supposed to be liberating things. They weren't supposed to be commodities. They weren't supposed to be good deeds or entertainment. They're supposed to be a vehicle for social change. But um, I went from running kind of rock and roll and punk clubs. Then I had to evolve because, again, I wanted to learn more. I knew I needed to do what I wanted. I knew I had to learn more, and I had to do things that weren't necessarily comfortable. And sometimes, and this is a good analogy, sometimes when you talk to nonprofits about acting like business, they react very much the way I did when I realized that to learn about what I wanted to do, to run the kind of club I wanted, I had to learn about jazz. Jazz was very foreign to me. Jazz to me seemed structured and, and orderly, and it seemed, again, like a business. You had to, you had to, it wasn't free form. It, well, I guess it was, but I mean, you know what? You, I think you get what I'm trying to say. Jazz was very different than rock and roll. Uh, but jazz is what brought out rich people. Jazz is what brought people out who were going to spend, you know, 50, 100, $200. So I went to work at a little nightclub, a big nightclub, now that I think about it, um, that featured, and again, this was, I just was looking for the best place to learn. I didn't realize how much I was going to learn because I went to work in a place that just coincidentally happened to also feature almost on their last legs, their last tours, some of the amazing giants of jazz. And again, I was a young man who was just trying to learn that business, almost going in not wanting to, to understand, but rapidly, rapidly embracing the jazz culture, and particularly through the stories I heard from, again, Carmen McRae, Sarah Vaughan, Billy Eckstein, Oscar Peterson, Mel Torme, Rosemary Clooney. Again, I was 23, I was 24. And not only was I just mesmerized by these entertainers who rehearsed every day, every single day rehearsed. You know, they'd come in at 2 o'clock in the afternoon and rehearse. And it, the, the intimacy of being in a club where, unlike the rock and roll clubs where they come in and play and go, they were there for a whole week. So you got to really know people. And, and most of these men and women were extremely open about their lives, which, which were, again, very much, in many situations, roller coaster rides of addiction, being really down, um, climbing back up. People on their last legs. I watched people who came in who, quite frankly, in the lexicon of jazz and music, they stylized. They had long since lost their pipes, and they kind of stylized their music. But you also saw people who really still had it. Sarah Vaughan. Interesting enough, Mel Torme, really. I didn't want to like Mel Torme. Mel Torme was a great entertainer and an amazing, amazing vocalist. Even at an advanced age, he was really good at his craft. But I became very respectful of that. So long story short, I'm working on my vision, and I'm trying to sell something that, frankly, very few people had ever done before. At the time, the business model, the smart money, was on a place that just basically said, in effect, we're going to charge you 20 bucks to get in. There'll be a VIP lounge upstairs, and there'll be a DJ downstairs. DJ was a new thing. 
but the point is you only had to pay a DJ a couple hundred dollars. I wanted to have an orchestra. I wanted a big band, not, not a big band, but an orchestra. I wanted the, the, the amazing liberty of having kind of a stable of 10 unique professionals who could be kind of merged. See, I'm getting myself excited. I should just, I should, I should, I don't know why I didn't open this club. I, I you know, up until a couple of years, years ago, that's all I wanted to do. But in talking about it, I still go back to this amazing moment. I've, I've plowed a lot of that creativity into the kitchen. But again, this, this vision I had for, you know, a show every night, not, not appearing tonight, but a show. Almost like when we were younger, many of us, you'd turn on Ed Sullivan, you really didn't know who was going to be on Ed that night, or Flip Wilson, or Carol Burnett, or any of these variety shows, but you trusted them to entertain you. To me, that's what I wanted to do. Anyway, so I'm building my business plan, and I'm taking a little bit of forays into this world and meeting, as I still do, people who look at things that they haven't seen yet, or can't grasp that sound far-fetched and hearing, oh man, why, you know, that, that doesn't make any sense. You'll lose money if you do that. You need to open a nightclub with a, with a DJ. Um, and then, you know, somewhat surprisingly, unexpectedly, I ended up going out to feed homeless people who sleep outside in Washington, D.C. Somewhat against my will, I was a reluctant um, volunteer, recovering hypocrite who, when offered a chance to convert this, which I had been doing all my life, the power of music to change the world into my own life, into my own neighborhood, when people said, would you like to come out, and again, like many people, in Baltimore, in Washington, in New York, throughout America, I sat and watched the growing number of men and women who were out on the street in the 19, late 1970s and, and through the 1980s, to the point by 1988, 89, this was omnipresent in every American city, but I think no more confusing um, nor um, frustrating than in Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, where you'd be right outside the back of the, the White House or right below the Capitol or, frankly, right on the grounds of the Washington Monument, and there'd be men and women and oftentimes families at times sleeping outside. And like many people, I was confused and wished somebody would do something about it. But here was an opportunity presented to me to go out and serve people. And rather than have the courage to say, in effect, yeah, that sounds like something I'd like to do. I found every excuse not to go. I, I worked diligently to avoid uh, the woman who was, I knew, trying to organize different volunteers to go out and was coming up short, and she was very desperate, and she had me marked. And I worked, again, as I said, I did everything I could to avoid her steely grasp. Um, and one day I just, you know, she went one way, I went the other, and she looped around and got me. And the next thing I know, I'm out on this truck, scared to death. And again, very, very, very direct with you. Um, you know, trying my best in, in nervous chatter to um, not reveal my nervousness about this experience. Who were the homeless? What was it going to be like? And in my nervousness, I asked innocently enough, where does the food come from? And found that it was purchased that night, um, or, or that afternoon, rather, up in, and many of you all know Washington, D.C., in Georgetown, the Safeway in Georgetown, the social Safeway, the most expensive store on the East Coast, no doubt. And I kept thinking to myself, well, now that's the most interesting thing. Here is this group with love in their hearts buying food. Um, when the restaurants I've grown up in all my life, part of our business model includes a certain amount of waste at the end of every evening. There is a business model that accounts for a certain amount of food that won't be sold that you will, in effect, you will try and serve the staff. But at the end of the night, there will, in effect, be no doubt food left over. And interesting enough, other friends of mine, and I mentioned earlier how hard it is to make 100 bucks when you're a waiter, a waitress, a bartender. Friends of mine who weren't as enamored with the nightclub world as I was and really just wanted to make some money had left the nightclub world and had migrated over to the catering industry. 
catering in the 1980s in Washington in particular before numerous laws have been enacted that limit the amount of money can, that congressmen can accept or be party to, catering was king. It was roast beef and shrimp and keep it coming in Washington, D.C. And numerous friends of mine had interest enough at a party a couple of weeks earlier. I had heard them loudly lamenting the fact that they were throwing away, in this one situation, about 20 legs of lamb after an event that was under um, attended. And there was a sense of frustration, but the routine, again, if you think about catering, that, per that food was purchased. The, the, the refrigerator back at the caterer is filled with tomorrow's jobs. There's no shelters open at 2 in the morning to accept it. No one wants to pay the driver of the, of the van to drive it around until they find somebody. There was the liability issue, the perceived liability issue, so that food was thrown away. So I kept thinking, here's this group buying food. Wouldn't it make more sense if they somehow could create some kind of a, a connection between the restaurants, the hotels, the hospitals, the universities um, to get that food? They could probably feed instead of, and again, uh, interesting little sidebar, but when you ask the average person to cook for 100 people or more, what you will inevitably get is lentil soup, chili, or spaghetti. That's what most people can extrapolate out. So. What you were getting night after night, again, purchased at the Safeway, was lentil soup and a variety of other things people get put together when, in effect, you had legs of lamb, freshest strawberries, a variety of just the best you could buy food from the caterers being thrown away. So I'm thinking about that when we pulled up in front of the um, State Department on Virginia Avenue in Washington, D.C., right between George Washington University and the State Department. There's a traffic island with a big steam grate on it. And as we pulled up and I kind of kind of peeked through the serving window that would soon slide open so we could start to distribute our foods. I saw a line of men and women out down the street and up around the corner waiting for this van to come up on a day very much like today, where it's not a driving rain, but it's wet, it's raw, and it's chilly. And here was this line of people dutifully waiting up, kind of hunched down, stepping from one foot to the other, trying to stay warm, waiting for this truck. And. Um, as we pulled up and started the service, my fears were very quickly mitigated. I mean, the, the, any of you all who have done direct service work, um, you find that very quickly um, your initial fears of the homeless are, are very quickly evaporate. And you find, in effect, oftentimes men and women who are um, extremely grateful, very cognizant, very, very, you know, good conversations. But at one eye, I was looking at the people I was serving, thinking how able-bodied so many of the men and women were. Um, and at the other eye, I was also looking at the end because over my left shoulder at the end of the serving line was the driver of the truck. And the driver was the one constant in the equation. He was the person that went out every night and picked up the volunteers at these seven different churches. So the driver knew many people by name, and he was calling people by name and saying almost to each one, you know, um, you know, Rashid, see you tomorrow night. Joe, see you tomorrow night. You know, Betty, see you tomorrow night. But the see you tomorrow night part is what got me, because again, I'm looking at one eye, one arm, one eye, seeing people coming up the line, and the other, I kept watching people almost juggling all these different things we'd given them that included, you know, a cup of soup, a cup of coffee, a banana, cookies, bread, and utensils, and they were juggling this stuff as they kind of wandered, literally, off into the mist of the night. Poe would have definitely written a poem about this scene uh, if he were still alive, um, and I kept thinking, wow. You know, and I kept looking at both ends. And as we drove back that night, the idea of the DC Central Kitchen was kind of hatched. It was one of those kind of epiphany moments where it's like, 
the restaurants have all this food, but they also have jobs, you know? And if you just picked up this food at the restaurants and dropped it off at a shelter or to these church men and women, as delightful as they are, they're not gonna have the culinary expertise to try and make sense of what could be, you know, a very awkward group of odds and ends. I mean, what would the average shelter person know what to do, for example, if you had a case of lemons or two cases of eggplant or, you know, a variety of things that, that in and of themselves wouldn't be a meal. And I kept thinking, wouldn't it be more interesting and, frankly, better um, if you could offer men and women who were in the line in the rain a chance to come in out of the rain and be part of the solution as opposed to this old dynamic? And, again, this is probably a very uh, an important part, an important break in, in my dialogue here because it will be one of a few moments in which I may sound a little bit self-righteous, and I don't want to go there. But, there again, I, I think it's important to acknowledge that – I, w I really felt kind of awkward at the end of this experience because even though, I mean, at one level I was self-congratulating myself, you did it, you went out and you served the poor, it was ugly. But at the same time, I went home thinking, I'm the one who got served. You know, I'm the one who's going home. I get a nice warm bed to climb into. I get, I get a, you know, to feel like I got a heart full of love because I did something right. But in effect, with love in our hearts, we had created a system in which we were almost using the homeless men and women on the street to feel good about ourselves, but we weren't doing anything to really help them in. And these were not bad People. This was not a bad system. It was just an old system that we genuflected to without questioning, was it working still? So the kitchen was born of that, that concern. And again, I thought you could not only feed more people better food with less waste if you could bring all these random donations to a central hub, but imagine if you could open a, a job training program. If you could teach men and women who were outside to cook, basic cooking, again, show up on time, work as a team, don't cut off your fingers, become a certified food handler, basic stuff. You know, you could create almost a little infinity loop in which you could get food donated from the restaurants, you could go back to this kitchen, you could prepare balanced meals, which you could distribute purposely, very, de very deliberately, to specific chosen organizations that would not just feed people outside, but would be part of a systematic kind of ladder that would lead people up and out, that would liberate people. Um, and then you could, again, you could save those agencies the money they needed to do their job better while you train men and women that you would then um, um, direct to the restaurants and the hotels and the hospitals that donated the food, in effect repaying them for their donation with trained people who will show up on time, which, again, having come up in the industry, I knew how important entry-level people could be. You really needed the amount of energy and time that it takes to train people only to have them leave. You know, if you could really give and you could provide access to people who had a, a higher degree of likelihood of sticking with the job, restaurants would be enthusiastic. So it was a good, basic, solid business model, interesting enough, based on FedEx. Um, you know what I love about this amount of time? I hope this is semi-entertaining, but I have a little, uh, you know, it's a longer gig than I normally have, so I'm going to kind of flesh things out. But this was based on FedEx, and FedEx at the time was a very new business model. Fred Smith, who started FedEx, his business model said if you wanted to get a letter from Baltimore, to Philadelphia, and it had to be there tomorrow. Fred Smith said for 10 bucks, he'd have somebody drive up in a van to your door, pick it up, take it to the airport, put it on a plane, fly it to Memphis, Tennessee, where he'd have a whole bunch of people who would sort these letters out. They'd put it on another plane, fly it to Pittsburgh or Philadelphia, put it on another truck, deliver it the next day by 10. That was Fred's business model. On paper, it sounded like Fred was going to lose a huge amount of money. I mean, this could never work. It worked. So I just came up with the, the idea of FedEx for food, the idea of using a, a kitchen rather than Memphis, Tennessee. But the basic idea was there. 
Now I came back a week later with a business plan, you know, very small, very concise, just a rough outline of how this would work, but enough I felt to inspire the men and women who worked at these different churches and the group that, that uh, administered the truck that drove around, that they would see this would, that this was a natural step forward for them and that they would embrace it. And many of you all have probably been in a very similar boat, and if you're good, you're always in this boat, in which you propose an idea that you assume will be embraced for its logic, for its, um, its compassion, its empathy, its vision, and um, oftentimes it's not. In fact, nine times out of ten, it's not. In fact, what you get, which is startling, and it, even though I know it's still naive of me to expect things to change, I want to hold on to this faith that somehow this can break open and that we as a sector will become much more open to the idea of, of fundamental, and I dare I say even radical change. But again, what you find and what I found was there was an immediate attempt to shoot down this idea by all the groups that, again, I, I assumed would be completely wide open to the idea that would embrace it enthusiastically and would allow me very quickly after maybe accepting the Volunteer of the Year Award to go back to running nightclubs. And um, again, what I found is people with love in their hearts, decent people, not bad people. I, I, I went through a phase of being angry at nonprofits um, because of this and a variety of other things that we'll discuss. But this is what really almost launched my, my, my legendary kind of frustration and anger. My book over here is, is loaded with this venom I had for the nonprofit sector at the time because I was stunned. I was stunned by how desperate people were to cling to their old concept and how um, almost extreme they were willing to go to shoot down a new idea. And this was the first of many encounters I have, and I still have, in which you know I was told, oh, all the reasons it wouldn't work. Health department won't allow it. But in fact, there was a law that facilitated the donation of food. Uh, the restaurants won't do it. And we had already, friends of mine had already signed up, saying, in effect, are you kidding? This is great business for me. If I can get a tax deduction for the food I was throwing away, if I can throw away less food, that means I'm going to have less um, trash issues to deal with. I'm going to have less pest issues. You may recall this was also a time, particularly for the hotels, in Washington, D.C., in the 1980s, we had a thing called the Sanctuary Movement that I know was shared by Baltimore and many other cities in which men and women who were coming from Central and South America, Guatemala, El Salvador, Nicaragua, were coming, and oftentimes the cities were turning a blind eye to the first wave of illegal immigrants at the time, but people who were fleeing regimes that were friendly to the United States but nonetheless were fleeing for their lives. And in D.C., we had a significant amount of men and women who had found work in the restaurants and hotels that were, frankly, um, mortified by the fact that we were throwing away this much food. I mean, this, these were men and women who were literally coming from small villages that oftentimes, particularly at a big hotel, the amount of food thrown away could literally have fed their village um, for at least a day, if not a week. So there was a morale issue. This is what I love about business, you know, the, all the little nuances of, 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 you know, why something's smart business. I had really thought this through, all the different reasons why this was good business for restaurants and hotels and, and hospitals to participate. Again, down to and including the morale of their staff, and as well as the goodwill of customers. This was also the advent of green marketing in America. You know, Ben and Jerry's was talking about 2% for peace, which nobody really knew what that meant, but they were lovable hippies, so everyone kind of bought it. But this was the very beginning of that concept. So the idea of putting out a window sticker that said, in effect, we don't throw away food. You know, we support this effort. 
that would be very beneficial as a business model so that customers walking down the street would say, wow, what a good business. I'm going to make sure that if I ever go out to dinner or, I, or, or where, when I say where I need to buy my food, I'm going to go and support that business. But then the final straw for me at least was when someone said, dude, we know you're, you're obviously a very caring young man. I was a young man back then. Um, but, um, you know, you can't train the homeless. And I was, again, like I said, I've, I've told this story a million times, but I just, I can still hold on to that, that stunned um, reaction I had, that I was just completely stunned that someone would say that, um, particularly the very people who I assumed were, would be the fastest to be open and embrace the larger idea of, of the uniformity of, of man, you know, that there was a sense all people have within them, this great divine spark, this great sense of entrepreneurial spirit, this great desire to own their own lives. Um, so it became very apparent very quickly that, and this may be the case for some of you who have started a nonprofit yourselves, where you feel like you've done everything you could to not open a new nonprofit or to not duplicate services, but no one will evolve beyond what they're currently doing, and that if you don't do something, this won't happen. This is one of those moments for me. I was telling the young students yesterday, not to draw too, too rough a comparison, but from a historic perspective, one of the people I'm most intrigued with, I, I'm, I'm fascinated, as you can tell, by liberation movements and liberators, and I study different people. And I came across a footnote recently in which I learned about a gentleman named Thomas Clarkson, who in the late 1800s paced um, at a little place called Wade's Mill, a recent graduate of Cambridge University. He had won the Latin essay contest there that the winner, if you won the Latin essay contest, you were literally assured a professional career. And in fact, even though he had gotten into Cambridge, which made, made him, um, elevated him well beyond the average man uh, in, in England at the time, nonetheless, Cambridge, like many universities, still was a stratified university, and there were different castes and different levels. And you could never really, in that kind of culture, very rarely could you ascend beyond your father's station in life. There was one potential and that was to win the Latin essay contest at Cambridge. This was kind of the great equalizer, and men lined up waiting to see what the subject of the Latin essay contest would be. And that year, influenced by some American Quakers who were not only in the U.S. but also in the U.K., pushing for the abolition, uh, the abolishment of the slave trade, um, the president, whatever, the committee of Cambridge that year decided to make the, the Latin essay question, is it wrong to enslave a man against his will? Again, Thomas Clarkson just wanted to win this prize with all his might, so he interviewed slave ship captains who were part of this insidious triangle that went from England with guns to northern Africa where they picked up, they dropped off guns and picked up slaves, and then went to Jamaica where they dropped off slaves and picked up sugar and rum, and then they went back, a very lucrative um, triangle. Um, and he interviewed um, soldiers who had come back from Jamaica, putting down one of many, many slave revolts there. And he eventually won the Latin essay contest on his way down to London to publish his work and to begin this new life as the, the grand winner of the prize. He stopped at Wade's Mill and got off his horse and had a similar moment where he realized, you know, I was born to do something else, but I all of a sudden have a crossroads in my life in which I realized the knowledge I gained seeking one prize opened my eyes to something. He couldn't do his job anymore. He couldn't go forward because... Again, in, in getting the prize, he was aware of the reality of what was going on, and he knew he had to do something about it. It wasn't his chosen path, but he knew that no one else was. So he got back on his horse, and this young man, a recent college graduate, literally launched the modern human rights movement. 
Now, this is also very um, germane to our conversation today when we talk about this kind of nonprofit business merger, because in effect, when he got on his horse, he analyzed the historic um, tactics of the Quakers, which had oftentimes, who had oftentimes framed the discussion in the context of right, wrong, good, bad. And what Thomas Clarkson did was try and reframe it into smart, dumb. And just as a sidebar, that's the way I do my business. I don't have any interest in right, wrong, good, bad, Republican, Democrat. I just do smart, dumb. It's a very simple way to do business, and I'll come back to that in a little bit. But Clarkson's thing was, to more, in order to make this thing work, I'm going to have to market this. I'm going to have to make more people understand. In, in, in effect, at the time, when he got back on his horse, he was going up against to a member, every single member of parliament, owned, owned or had an interest in the slave trade. One of the most startling things that I found was that John Locke, who, writ, who wrote the, the Rights of Man, that was basically the blueprint for all these liberation movements that were happening in the United States, in France, had an interest in the slave trade. The King of England had an interest in the slave trade. The Church of England, a huge, I mean, it, this was almost the financial underpinning of all of England, and that's what he was going up against. But he knew the debate stopped at Parliament and the members of Parliament, all men, all landed men, again, all slave owners or people had interest in the slave trade. So he knew we had to break that stranglehold on information. So he created, and we've all seen in our history books, a famous picture, and I should in my, in my back of my head have, uh, remember the name of the slave ship, but a woodcut that, out, that showed the outline of a slave ship and the way slaves were laid out systematically to maximize the space within a slave ship's hull. Um, hull. No one had ever done this. This is considered the first piece of investigative journalism. And again, he printed 40,000 of these things and spread them all over so that when members of parliament left, and no matter where they went, whether they went to the pub, the parlor at home, no matter where they went, people were talking about this. He also um, did an economic impact study, um, which led him to launch the first modern boycott, and it was the boycott of sugar. And he enlisted in particular young men and women who, who quite frankly, were um, enthralled by sugar. Um, sugar was along, um, you know, of all of the different things that came from the New World, on podcasts he says with quotes, um, the potato, the tomato, chocolate, sugar was revolutionary for the palate of um, 15th, 16th, 17th century England um, and Europe in general, which had a very bland diet. So to ask young men and women in particular to give up sugar was asking a lot. That's what he got him to do. And 40 years later, um, England became the first country in the, uh, in the world to um, abolish the slave trade. Again, this is the, the, the thing I kind of, same moment for me. I realized that, wow, I've got to do something. I know enough about food, even though I just run nightclubs. Nonetheless, in D.C. at least, there's no such thing as a pub. You can't just go in and get liquor. You have to have a restaurant. 51% of your income has to be food. So I knew enough about food service. It was not my chosen part of the business. I was a front-of-the-house person. Nonetheless, I knew enough about food service to know that the kitchen idea would work and had to happen. So I put aside the nightclub temporarily, I thought, and started this business. But I was going to embrace the kind of same attitude that Clarkson had, that I was going to take this as far as I could beyond the confines of traditional charity. That, I, I was um, frustrated, again, uh, that they would not embrace this opportunity. So the kitchen, from the very, very early stages, was very, very interested, and it remains very interested in marketing. Now, this oftentimes in our business is confused with self 
promotion and i i really want to just shoot that down immediately because you know to get down to brass tacks you know malcolm x dr king mahatma gandhi cesar chavez and anybody else who's done major liberation work has at one time or another been accused of us being a self-promoter forget that just embrace it you have got to sell your product the public at large gandhi once said and i'm going to come back to this later on but gandhi once said in his wisdom the oppressed and the oppressor are equally afflicted. The nonprofit sector in general spends all its time with the oppressed. I'm interested in healing the oppressor. And to, the, to those ends, I mark it relentlessly because what I'm trying to do is, is take an idea. Just as Clarkson took that woodcut, you know, I try and take a similar idea out into the broader public so that we have a much more deliberate conversation. This was born out of a lot of things that I brought with me to this effort. Um, and first and foremost was, it's not a business person's eye, because I'm not that smart. I'm not that great a business person, again. But it was just a sense of, of because I wanted to work with music and change things, I was very, very aware at an early time of trends. I followed musical trends, but nonetheless trends in general, that idea of what's coming down the road. In this situation, I knew that there was going to be a predictable decrease in food that there was, in effect, a significant amount of food being thrown away in America. And even though I had tapped into what was, in effect, a gold mine. I mean, you know, we were throwing away, on average, 25% of the food we produced every single day in America. The food bank in Baltimore, food banks everywhere were the original places where all this food came in. But nonetheless, that food represented lost profit. You know, that was money. And more importantly, I, I tell you these stories, A, because I think they're modestly entertaining. It's a fun thing to know about it. But it also speaks to what we're doing because there are trends that are happening in our sector that we sometimes are too blind to. And this is a classic example because I came into a system that was used to, banked on, and felt confident that there would be a steady stream of surplus food in America. Again, there was, it was understandable that people thought that. But to really look at it hard, most people who did hunger work had never done food business. So again, they didn't recognize it was lost profit, and they also didn't see one of the more interesting trends of the early 90s, which was the advent of cable television. And with cable television came cooking shows and the, and the, and the dawn of the celebrity chef. All of a sudden, Americans became mesmerized by chefs. These were the new rock stars. And what happened, unbeknownst to many people in the food, the hunger business, was that it used to be if you wanted to be a chef in America, you went to Johnson & Wales in Providence, Rhode Island, Rhode Island, or the Culinary Institute at Hyde Park. If you wanted to study hotel management, you went to Cornell University or you went to Purdue. All of a sudden, all over America, cooking programs started opening up, chef schools. We were leaving the manufacturing economy and rapidly going into the service economy. So what you had was the beginning of this giant um, evolution of the hospitality industry, away from a very a small niche employer to a major employer, and in fact now the major employer in America. So what you were seeing, and what again my brothers and sisters didn't, weren't aware of, is this wave coming of food service professionals who had visions of being the next Emerald and having their own TV show, but were most likely just going to get a rock-solid basic job in a restaurant, but who were going to bring with them the um, most modern uses of science and technology to do inventory control and a variety of things that were going to rapidly decrease the supply of food that this food system was banking on. Not only were they banking on it, but they were doing capital campaigns to build bigger food banks in anticipation of more food coming in. I started waving my hand saying, in effect, 
dudes, 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 wrong. You know, this is, it's understandable, but you, this is the wrong direction. You know, A, again, the food's going to decrease. Um, and the baby boomers, this was 1996, I started really thinking about the fact that in 10 years' time, in 2006, the first baby boomer was going to turn 60. And very early on, I started doing the math and figured that in 2006, January 1st, midnight, dong, 12,000 people a day were going to turn 60 in America. And in 1996, there was already a waiting list in half American cities for Meals on Wheels. Half of American cities have a waiting list. as 80 million people coming. So I'm thinking, A, business model, you are going to have less food coming in and, not, and more people hungry, and they're going to be a different kind of person who's going to want a different kind of meal in a very different kind of setting than the traditional soup kitchen or pantry in which the entire system is built on. So A, there is a business case that you must evolve rapidly. But at the same time, this is where it gets interesting, my brothers and sisters, at the same time, the kitchen opened up on George Bush Sr.'s inauguration day. And press from around the world, who could resist? This is what I do. Who could resist pictures, images, the story of food from the inauguration going to homeless people the next day? It was perfect for media. And I wanted that media because I knew that not only for my own purposes in Washington, but nationally, for people to really access this amazing pool of food, prepared food, there was this urban myth that it was illegal for restaurants to do this. The health department won't let you. And I knew it wasn't illegal, but I knew that, that that urban myth was so profound that you had to do something giant, seismic, to shift understanding and to, and to, to um, allow people in any country, to any, any county, any city to access that. So by getting the President of the United States to donate, I could, in effect, in one foul swoop, open the door not only in D.C. but nationwide. And that I could, in effect, by the way, I did my business, also help all the other nonprofits in the United States who wanted to do something like it which very much is part of my personal ethos. I don't do, I'm not interested in the kitchen first and foremost. I, I, I'm, I'm interested in, in an idea and a movement and then the kitchen. So I always try and use my program to drive an idea further out or the movement further out, not just raise money for me. But this is where it gets interesting because the next day the phone started ringing. And I assumed, quite frankly, it was gonna be people who had food that wanted to donate people who had money who were really intrigued by the idea that I was launching that would take this food back to a kitchen and train men and women um, in D.C., just as probably in Baltimore at this time. This was a town that you had a significant heroin and alcohol issue. You know, PCP was out there, but you had a significant amount of that. And while I was saying, I will train men and women, whoever's at the bottom, I'll train. If you're out of prison, if you're out of a drug treatment program, whatever, if you're at the bottom, that's who will train. I assumed I'd get money and, and food and people wanting to volunteer, and that came. But the staggering thing that I was completely unprepared for was the phone calls I got from people who were hungry, who were so different than what I thought. I thought naively that my machine would be able to feed the homeless, assuming that's who was hungry in America. And on the very first day, I got calls from people saying, my mother, my grandmother is at home and has to choose between medicine and food. Can you help her? I'm a working woman, and my kids are in an after-school program, and I don't get home till 6, and there's no snack. Can you help? And on day one, my small little idea of hunger was exploded, and I realized hunger is not about food. Hunger is about wage. Hunger is about prison. Hunger is about domestic violence. Hunger is about prison. It's just, boom, it exploded. So while I knew that I had to help people open kitchens, and I knew that I had to be part of this broader movement to, def to help 
make sure that people maximize the use of food as a liberating tool, I knew, I knew that this was, that that was not ever going to be the solution, that there had to be something bigger. That I go back to that, so again, the immediate freedom of RICS and the long-term freedom. So I knew that at one level this was going to be my RICS, but I had, to, I had to be part of something bigger. I had to be talking about a different kind of freedom in which when you said to someone there's a waiting list for Meals on Wheels, instinctively, understandably, historically, the first reaction is, wow, we better make Meals on Wheels bigger. And what I'm trying to say is, no, let's stop and think about the way we treat our elders in America. Is this smart business? Is it, not only is it right, is it smart to look at 80 million people the baby boomers, who will no doubt be the richest, freest, most educated, and longest living generation in the history of the planet, do we want to continue in America to treat our elders as disposable, as we do many things? Again, the entire nonprofit sector, sector when you get down to it, is based on extra, disposable. We, everything we use, we use extra money, disposable money. I mean, if you get really down to brass tacks, you know, as hardcore as it sounds, and maybe as cynical as it sounds, a significant amount of our income is based on what people have extra at the end of the year to get a tax write-off. It's what government deems as extra. I use extra food, food we were going to throw away. What the heck? Give it to the poor. You know, extra clothing, extra time. You know, we are, we are a sector built on extra. And the larger question is, is that the way we want to go? At one level, of course, we have to talk about a, how do we use the extra? You know, B, do we want to put up with using the extra? And C, is it right, is the system, no matter which way you cut it, right in the first place? And that's kind of the three ways I do my business. And I think I gave you a pretty good sense of the kitchen and how we do our business. We just graduated our 74th class uh, from our job training program. And I must admit, it has more to do with the men and women of that particular class. But as an organization, we're pretty darn good at what we do, and we had 100% of the men and women who started the class finish the class, a 12-week program. And that's big league ball. I'm, I, I must admit I'm, I'm wildly proud of the team we have because we work in the basement of the biggest shelter in America down in Washington, D.C. There's one window. Actually, there's two now windows we have in our operation. It is hot, hot, hot in the summer. It's cold, cold, cold in the winter. And, again, it's in the basement of an old building, and gravity's a drag, and stuff just drips down, and we, you know, it's, it's, it's what you'd expect it to look like. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it's a very clean, sanitary kitchen. Um, but, nonetheless, we have an incredibly good team there. Um, I'm a big believer in paying people a solid middle-class salary. You know, I, I, in fact, if anybody wants to later on to have a discussion about wage in the nonprofit sector, that's a very, very interesting issue right now. But I want to make sure that people can really dig in, particularly our young employees can really dig in and go home and not have to hear mom and dad say, when are you going to get a real job? Um, and that pays off. That has paid off handsomely because we have a dynamic, loyal team of people who are really dedicated to what they do, extremely professional, very, very flexible. You know, the kitchen was born out of this ethos that we were never, ever going to become one of those organizations that says, no, we can't. That's not, that doesn't work. We wanted to be completely dedicated to yes um, and completely dedicated. Again, and a good example of this is the evolution of our training program because when we started, it was, as I said earlier, primarily alcohol and heroin. And again, quite frankly, that's a very easy set of, of, of um, drugs, if you will, to work with because, again, heroin addicts not off and alcohol you can smell. So it was very easy to train people in that kind of environment. Then came crack cocaine. And crack, I must admit, um, 
I, I completely, like many people, underestimated crack. Um, and crack just tore through Washington, D.C., like a cyclone. Um, and it was a much more insidious drug because, you know, literally people would look, you could see them for 12 weeks doing great, holding their life together, and they could be using the entire time and you wouldn't know it, and they'd get that job and crash and burn. So again, we, we again embrace this idea of never become rigid, never have a set curriculum, never have a set way of doing things. Each group, the, uh, if you follow trends, you're going to have to um, um, have a, a malleable training program so you can adapt constantly because after crack, we came welfare reform in 1996, and you had a significant amount of women coming in with very little work or um, educational background. Now it's primarily felons. We deal primarily with felons, and that's forced us not only to evolve as a training program, but also as an organization. We've had to move past being a simple trainer because as good as we are at what we do and we're very good at what we do, the reality is we're still in a place where, like Baltimore, we have a significant amount of, of um, corporate food service outlets. You know, the, the mom and pops, the people who would oftentimes, they're of Baltimore, they're, they're willing to give a son or daughter of Baltimore who maybe got on the wrong road a second chance or a third chance, they're gone more and more. And what they've been replaced by are men and women of Baltimore but who, who might say, man, I love your program, but, man, you know, Omaha, Nebraska, corporate headquarters, they have a policy. My hands are tied. Policy says no felons. So I could... Again, as many of my colleagues do in the nonprofit sector, lament the fates. I could be mad at, at, at Omaha. I could actually go and protest in front of them, um, which none of those are necessarily bad tactics. The reality is I knew that I had to evolve and become an employer. Um, I had to start to not only uh, for our own institutional well-being, but also for the well-being of the men and women we served. I, I, we just had to evolve. So now we employ about... I think 70% of our staff are graduates of our job training program. We bring in half our own revenue now. So anyway, the kitchen has evolved. And I, just so you know, I'm not telling you about the kitchen out of pride. I just think our story presents kind of the trajectory of the sector. And even though it's been specific to what I do, I think it, symbolically a lot of what we've gone through represents a lot of the same things that the broader nonprofit sector has gone through. Now, before we go further, I, I think it's really important um, and I've, I've, I've done this recently very, very delicately, but historically I think it's, it's, it's important before we take this next step forward together and talk about nonprofits as businesses and, and that evolution to understand why nonprofits are, are the way we are. Now, again, as I said earlier, I went through a phase of being very, very angry and, and just pissed off at the nonprofit sector because I felt they almost were purposely, purposely ignoring their larger responsibility and purposely you know, kind of sitting there like lumps on a log and just not evolving because they were dumb or they were lazy, you know. And i got to be honest with you, I, I, I have, like many people, and I urge you all to embrace the, the evolution of thought. Um, I started to really work backwards, and I kept wondering, why? Why do we act this way? Just so you know where this nurture, this kind of why came from, many of you all may remember our United Way in Washington, D.C. caught fire a couple of years ago. And I was um, with a friend drinking beer, and I say this all the time, particularly to young people, never make a career decision after two pitchers of beer. Um, but I, I, we, we were lamenting the fact that in a town full of leaders, no one was stepping up to step in to um, fill the shoes of the now vacant executive director's role at the United Way. This was a $90 million a year machine between the United Way and the combined federal campaign. 
and though it was on fire and though everyone was mad at it, it was important to the broader ecology of our town. And I, we were all stunned. When's someone going to step up? And I had been writing this book, and I had been away for a couple of weeks, and I came back assuming that the fires would have gone out. And not only had they not gone out, but there was a line of people almost daily calling the Washington Post, announcing that they were going to have a press conference to announce their departure from the United Way. So you had, you know, the, red, the ill-named Redskins, the, you know, Marriott. How, how bad do you have to be to piss off the Mormons? I mean, Marriott. Marriott was calling press conferences announcing they were, they were leaving. And it was like, wow. And only two pictures of beer later, I'll, I'll take over. <laughs> and five days later, I was in charge of the United Way of Washington, D.C. You know, and it's like, God bless America, man. You know, a high school graduate nightclub guy is now in charge of the United Way. But I've got to be honest with you, at the time, one of the reasons I was so anxious to jump from a business perspective, just so you know, is I wanted that campaign film. Four minutes of film, four minutes of media to express what a new United Way could look like in the nation's capital where every potential department head of the federal government, every business person who went in to do a United Way kickoff could see a film that went far beyond the historic, you know, um, understandable United Way vignettes of like, you know, Susie took her first steps, thanks to United Way, give generously. A new use of film was a powerful thing I wanted to explore. But I'll be honest with you, I was really intrigued by the fact that if you take any group of us in the nonprofit world down to the bar and give us a couple of drinks, how long does it get before we start kvetching about the foundations and the people who give away the money and how smart, if they just give us the money, boy, howdy, how things would be different. Well, they put one of us in charge of the United Way. I, th I was stunned. I thought, quite frankly, that I would turn to um, metaphorically to my city and see an army of nonprofit colleagues who were giddy with excitement over the fact that one of us was now in charge. And because I, I was literally inviting them in, it's like, come on. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen those old Mickey Rooney movies. My dad's got a barn, let's put on a show. It's like, they just gave one of us the keys to the United Way. Let's take it over. We can do whatever we want before they figure it out. Let's change the locks. Um, and there was nobody there. Virtually in, in there, like today, in the um, perceived emergency of the moment, in the, the chaos, the financial chaos of this United Way's demise, and, and the scramble for where are we going to make up for this $90 million, everyone went in their own direction. Everyone felt it survived. my program must survive. So no one was, was at least willing to step up and join into an us. It was a me culture. And I was just despondent, quite frankly. I was so let down and discouraged by my peers because um, who I assume would be there with me. And they were all like, we're behind you 100%, Robert, but they weren't there with me. I did my nine months there, and I, it was interesting because from that vantage point, I was able to see how Americans give their money, at least in D.C. I was, I was very aware of who was giving. For example, you know who gives in America? It's, it's secretaries. You know, it's people who make under 50 grand. That's who gives, you know. And I was watching where people give. They were giving to free clinics for animals before they give to free clinics for people, you know. And you were starting to see the, the, the weirdness of American charity. And I went off to study the Indian National Congress again in, in my ongoing desire to study independence movements. I had ran across an amazing little footnote in a book that said the British never had more than 3,000 officers ever stationed in India. And that mesmerized me how the 3,000 dudes could, could um, dominate 350 million people on an entire subcontinent for a century and a half. So I went to India after I left the United Way because I needed a break from Washington, D.C. Sometimes when you love something so desperately and it disappoints you, sometimes to risk a permanent 
fracture, you just need to take the proverbial powder, as they used to say. So I decided to get out of town for a couple of weeks, and I went to India to study this, assuming it would take me a couple of, literally at least a week, if not two, to discover how the British were able to do this. And it only took me about a day to figure out that as long as the British could keep Indians divided by race, caste, class, geography, language, and fighting each other, it was a piece of cake. That's when it hit me. That's the nonprofit sector in America. Through the lens of history, it seemed impossible that 350 million people could be dominated by just a handful of white officers, yet they were. Um, and I kept thinking, oh my goodness, you know, and, and the more I realized this, you know, the nonprofit sector in America, as diverse as we are, it's probably this library, it's the university, it's the art galleries, it's your programs, it's mines, it's the synagogues, it's the mosques, but if you pulled us together, we are economically the equivalent of India. Thank you, my handsome brother. Actually, I'd love a little more coffee if you don't mind. Thank you, Hen. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 I'm good, thank you. But I'm a good tipper, my brother, don't, don't, don't think. Um,